0: Welcome to the Basic Scotland podcast series. These are brief snapshots of topics relevant to pre-hospital care, predominantly within Scotland, and some deep dives into specialist areas with experts from a wide range of disciplines. My name is Dave Strachan. I'm an army surgical registrar, a basics responder, and a mountain rescue doctor. We at Basic Scotland are very grateful to NHS Education for Scotland for all of their support with these podcasts. Joining us today, we have Averick O'Kelly. Averick's a former U.S. Army Green Beret. Uh, He's a psychologist and a board-certified critical care paramedic. So a pretty wide-ranging background. Currently the dean for the College of Remote and Offshore Medicine Foundation, which does various bits of education programs for remote, austere, and offshore industries. He's taught with various military organizations across NATO and for the Ministry of Defense, and has a diploma in tropical nursing from the London School of Health and Tropical Medicine, and is currently writing a doctorate with the University of Stirling. Averick, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your expertise. Thanks for the kind invitation. With a a pretty wide-ranging background, how did you end up developing this interest in prolonged field care?
1: Well, it came from my experiences in Green Berets, and then when I got out, I was, as a civilian, teaching the Green Berets and some of the other soft units on both sides of the pond. And right around 2005, 2006, with the conflicts at hand, uh, the concepts of prolonged field care started. And it wasn't until Sean Keenan at the SOMA conference in 2014 started to actually solidify the, the concepts of PFC.
0: I guess we probably need to kind of tie down some definitions. What are we really meaning by this prolonged field care? The original concept of PFC
1: was found in, in Afghan and in Iraq for people who go through the THC march algorithms and then are sitting on their casualty waiting for extractions and medical evacuation. And what Dr. Sean Keenan found was there was some skills needed to fill that gap to stabilize the casualty whilst waiting for evacuation. And currently it's going into overdrive, the whole concept of prolonged field care, because now the conflict is removing itself from the Middle East. And now we're looking at unconventional areas such as Africa, where evacuation is 12 hours, 24 hours, four days away. And PFC is going to be a much needed
0: skill set in the coming years. Absolutely. Bringing it back in terms of where we are in Scotland, this all seems very distant and remote, but actually, there are a lot of places in Scotland where you're looking at maybe four to six hours before you've got your patient out to definitive care, depending on the sort of the job that you're in. Certainly for me in the mountains, that's that's a fairly fairly quick timeline. Absolutely. The
1: prolonged field care concept is definitely not a military only. In my hometown of Cairosavine in Ireland, we're an hour and 10 minutes to the nearest hospital. So that is prolonged field care whilst you're trying to get into definitive care. And from the civilian standpoint, the prolonged field care is, is actually needed, I think, more so than the military. And Dr. Sean Keenan, now that he's gotten out of the army, he and I and a group of people are civilianizing the concepts of PFC. It is called austere emergency care because we feel that it is very applicable to the needs of the civilian population.
0: So walking through a job, um, you've arrived on scene, let's say, trauma-type job in the a, in a Scottish context, maybe a, a rural road traffic collision. You've done the initial assessment, you've triaged your patients, you've, you've provided some interventions in that primary survey phase, you've then maybe looked at extraction, got them into a place of safety, thought about a secondary survey, and then this is filling that gap afterwards, I guess.
1: It is. In the college in Malta where I teach, the secondary survey starts with prolonged field care. So as you stabilize your casualty going through either March or or CABC or whatever system you have, and you get down to D-disability and you stabilize a casualty in an e-environment or exposed and you've got them under a a bothy shelter. So you've checked all those boxes. The guy's not dying on you anymore. You started the meds, you've, you've stabilized them. You automatically roll into prolonged field care at that point.
0: And this is a, a real mindset change rather than just what we used to teach, which was just going back over and reassessing a to e repeatedly and not really making any progress.
1: That is correct. And working on civilian ambulances, I've had many casualties that are extremely critical. We stabilize them, and literally within 10 minutes, we, we turf them off to the A&E, as we should. And there's no time for secondary survey, let alone a prolonged field care concept. But because so many people are living and working like the highlands and islands of, of where you're from that they're remote you have plenty of time with a casualty and, and actually there's some tasks at hand that must be addressed if you're going to be sitting on this casualty for a long time so just going through ADE and then putting them in a bothy shelter and staring at them for the next two hours is not doing them any good at all so you have to go through the prolonged field care problem sets to address some of these nursing issues that uh, us as critical care paramedics and yourself as a doctor don't often deal with. But we have to provide nursing care to the casualty.
0: It's interesting from our point of view, our basics responders, we have some nurses amongst our number, and this comes very naturally to them. But for the rest of us, it's a new set of skills to try and acquire.
1: I agree. In all honesty, if I could tell myself back in the late 80s when I started out again that I would have been a much better medic nowadays if I had started as a nurse, because they have this inherent knowledge of the nursing skills and how to treat a casualty for long periods of time. And we have to learn this as paramedics and docs. I encourage our remote paramedic program in Malta to emulate what the nurses are doing. And and we do teach quite a bit of nursing curriculum in our bachelor's degree because that's what you need for prolonged
0: field care. Okay, let's dive into some of the details. Let's say we've stabilized our patient initially. There are various algorithms and mnemonics that float around the place. Where do you start when you're kind of moving into that secondary care mindset? We nicked it from the Hereford lads. We use
1: HITMAN. There's Ravine and there's lots of other mnemonics out there. As a Green Beret, I'm supposed to like Ravine because that's what we use. I don't think the lads in Hereford had a better idea with HITMAN. And the reason is when we do our ATE assessment, we add F, which is full set of vital signs, G, which is get documentation, and then H, HITMAN rolls right onto it. So our paramedics automatically roll into HITMAN as they go through their patient assessment. So we use HITMAN mnemonic to cover the main topics of what you need to deal with in a prolonged casualty talk us through
0: the hitman algorithm
1: so Hitman stands for head to toe exam infections tubes medicines administration and then nursing care And these are topics that you need to deal with if you're going to be sitting with this casualty for a while. So, H head to toe. So, we've just done ATD assessment. We've stabilized him. We've done needle decompression. We've got a Foley in. We've given him ketamine. So, he's happy, everyone's happy, and he's stable we need to start at the secondary assessment and do a full head-to-toe exam. Maybe we miss something and we're dealing with these big sick issues, a critically unwell casualty, and we might miss a bit tapped at the head where there's a minor bleed. Or So we do a full head-to-toe and we reassess and address any issues. Eye infections. So six-hour window is pretty evidence-based. You can have a scrape and for six hours it looks grand, but after six hours, the wee beasties, the bacteria, are already starting to multiply. So if you have your casualty for long periods of time, during your hip and the eye infections, you need to clean and debride, and if you have the ability, uh, suture and close uh, wounds. If not, you do what to dry dressings, because guaranteed you're going to have infection problem if you're sitting on this guy for more than six hours. T for tubes is if you put all sorts of plastic stuff in our casualties, don't we? IV lines, ET tubes and chest drains or and T and Hitman is looking back at these and making sure they're still patent. IV lines can easily clog if they don't get flushed every 20 minutes or so. M is medicines. So we put the initial dose of ketamine on, on him. Does he need midazolam top-up? Or is there any like if there's a scrape, now we need to think about antibiotics and the longitudinal observations of how the medicines are being used and making sure they have the therapeutic dose of the drugs at hand. A, administration is where you document again, and you replenish your supplies if you can. You have a chance to recuperate. So you've been full tilt for 45 minutes, 50 minutes, and you're tired. You have to pee. You're thirsty. So this is where you delegate to one of your other medics or to some of your EMTs or wilderness first responders to mind your casualty while you go and take a break. Go behind a big stone and have a wee bit of a cry or whatever you need to to get back on the game. And then the last one is N, which is nursing care. And we have designed the whole sheep vomit mnemonic to address all the nursing
0: issues. Fantastic. Walks us through that secondary survey and things that really stick in my head. Things like that, that medication often we've got initial drugs that we use during our acute resuscitation phase that maybe aren't ideal longer term so you mentioned ketamine there, you know a fantastic drug but often after that hyper acute phase i'll be looking to transition my patients onto something maybe a little longer acting maybe a little bit less psychoactive so again it encourages that mindset change
1: agreed and using the prolonged field care mnemonic it forces you to readdress these issues whereas a Critical care paramedic working on the ambulance, I can throw any drug in there into the casualty because I don't have them for more than 20 minutes. I'd turf them off to a doc and say, hey, you know, by the way, I just gave him 100 milligrams of ketamine. Good luck with that. And then i drive away.
0: <laughs> just to kind of highlight from what you said there is is about self-care, looking after yourself as the medic, because it's still too easy. Again, you know, drawing on the mountain background, you can be, as you say, full tilt, dealing with a situation managing that initial rescue phase, stabilizing your patient, and then you suddenly realize that you've actually not had anything to drink for six hours and that your sugar levels are hitting rock bottom and that your brain is stopping working and that maybe some of that cognitive constipation, you're straining for the next thing to do but nothing's coming. is because you're running on empty as well.
1: Agreed. It kind of gives you a chance to have a second wind to clear the head a bit. And then when you get back, you're like, ah, you know what? I totally missed this. And then you
0: can readdress your casualty. The other thing that I would add into that admin phase maybe is thinking about the communications both internally and that shared mental modelling, but also maybe externally updating control, making sure that the extrication plan is sorted, making sure that you've pre-alerted the receiving hospitals. So all of that can get tied in around the administration.
1: That's correct. And this is also where if you are getting exfilled within the next half hour or so, you can start packaging your casualty. You can start clearing the debris away from the field because HEMS guys don't really like, in the military, call them FODS, foreign objects to get sucked into the engine. So part of the administration is packaging your casualty and just making sure that the landing site is ready to go. If you're in high altitude, which a lot of you guys are in Scotland, you might want to remove the air in your ET tube bulb and fill that with sterile water. So if you go up in elevation, you're not going to lose the seal on the cuff. And we have checklists on our field guide that get you ready
0: for hen's arrival. I guess the logical follow-on, having worked through that hitman approach, is to then kind of dive into sheep vomit <laughs> which is not a yeah. phrase you think you're going to say very often <laughs> no so, can you kind of unpick sheet from it a bit for us Talk yeah
1: so it. that came from jason Jarvis, who's another 18 delta special forces medic he and i were sitting in pretty bay malta where our school is and we said we need to extrapolate the whole n and hitman because we all know there's vast amounts of nursing skills that were needed so we went through critical care nursing checklists to extract the skills that we thought would be needed on the side of a mountain. And then we spent, there might have been a pint involved, I cannot confirm or deny that, but (laughs) we spent quite a few hours coming up with what is a mnemonic that's going to address these? And my mnemonic wasn't doing well. So Jason came up with Sheep Vomit, and we discussed it as it's just not a pretty name. And we both agreed that that was a benefit because people are going to remember this really un- It's not lovely, is it, this name (laughs) to address this. So the sheep vomit, the sheep is S, skin protection, H, hypo and hyperthermia, and hypo and hyperglycemia. E is elevating the head. E is also exercising such as passive range of movement, so you don't get a DVT. It's DVT prophylaxis. Uh, P is pad stretcher and pressure points, and then vomit. V is continual vital signs. Mm O is oral hygiene, so your pneumonia bacteria are in your teeth, and if you have a casualty that you're not cleaning the teeth, that bacteria is just going to go down to the lungs and a good chance of getting pneumonia, so 12 hours, every 12 hours, you definitely need to do oral hygiene, and is massage, so you're massaging the legs and the arms to reduce DBT, your ins and outs, and this is very much a nursing mainstay, uh, you need to document what goes in and you need to document what comes out so you have your 50 mils per hour minimum urine output and you want to make sure that you're getting adequate nutrition in and the last t is turn cough and deep breath because somebody who's laying on their back they're collecting all sorts of goo in their lungs and be able to get them to move and cough to remove the phlegm in the lungs is really helpful so that is the sheep vomit that we came
0: up with. Brilliant. I can see some of the mainland basics responders thinking to themselves, well, I'm never really going to get round to this. But actually, even on the mainland, thinking about hypothermia, which is a particular love of mine, and padding stretches and getting the heads elevated, all of that is stuff that takes seconds to do, but makes a huge difference in terms of outcome down the line.
1: Correct. And there's really good research showing 30 minutes she's starting to get pressure sores. So why not be a better medic and pad your casualties so they don't get necrotic tissue?
0: I was in the emergency department at my previous hospital not so long ago and discovered that a patient had been brought in on a vacuum mattress beautifully packaged up. And it wasn't until we were going through the CT scan images that we discovered that there was a roll of tape that had found its way into the smaller Ooh. patient's back between the vac mat and the patient's back and caused a, a pretty well-established bit of skin necrosis, uh, not to mention significant discomfort for the patient, let alone the patient care bit of it. It's, it's just embarrassing when that, <laughs> when that happens <laughs> to you as a medic and you've yeah. caused more injury to your patient. You lose cool points when that happens. Definitely. I guess probably the point at which we're really going to be in amongst sheep vomit is thinking about some of our island responders where if the weather's clapped out and you're not going to get air transport in for a number of hours, we're really then going to be thinking about particularly the environmentals and in and out management, that sort of thing. How do you capture and record all of these decisions and how do you chart sort of sheep vomit?
1: So that, that's a very good question. Longitudinal observations is paramount for the remote practitioner you need to be able to document your vital signs and your sheet vomit results over time because you might see a slow drop in your mean arterial pressure and, oh, it's above 65, what do I care? But then over time with your longitudinal observations, you're seeing your map go to 80, 75, 73, 70, and you're seeing the downgrade. And i like, oh, we've got an internal bleed leak. Get the ultrasound out and let's do another fast and see what happens. So the vital signs are the longitudinal documentation is paramount that really does separate city-based mentality medic and the rest of us that are dealing with casualties and prolonged field care so the documentation is really really important and we have the rule of thumb of a critically unwell casualty every five minutes you need to do your vital signs and 15 minutes for a non-critical casualty
0: so it's a fair burden of work and you talked during hitman about starting to share out that workload Do you have any tips for how you go about that handover of care within your own team? That's a valid
1: question. And teamwork is what's going to make or break a remote medic. We are not Superman. We don't wear underwear on the outside of our pants and we don't have a cape. We're only as good as the team that we have. So even if you're out with people who have little or no first aid, you can do crew resource management and get them to delegate some of the stuff. Even if it's just doing a BP check or writing down the four main vital signs, for us it's CPRO, it's capillary refill, pulse respiratory, and pulse oximetry. Anyone, a bystander, I could teach them to do CPRO within minutes or within seconds and then have them document the CPRO every five minutes. And the CPRO is a great hemodynamic monitoring system because you only need an SpO two monitor, which everyone has them nowadays, and you just put them on a finger, and there you have it. You have your cpro but it gives you a very quick hemodynamic status of your casualty. If you add MAP to that, you have a really good understanding of of your casualty. And doing that over
0: longitudinal times will give you trending. I guess it, thinking at it from a from a CRM or human factors point of view. All of that buys you the sort of cognitive space to go back and think some deep thoughts about your patient and make sure that you've not missed anything, that you're happy with your working diagnosis, that you've remembered all the various bits of medication and allows you to go back and think through your hitman and your sheep vomit, and just screen it for missing anything. Correct. And reassess
1: and go through your hitman again and again and again, because a catheter can get clogged. 10 mil flush every few minutes or every 20 minutes will keep that from getting clogged. It's the little things that make a difference. In Special Forces, we had a saying, what makes Special Forces special is we are the very best at the basics. So everyone's, oh, you, you you get to dive, you get to jump out of high aircraft, you get to shoot all these fun, yes, we got to do these fun things, but really what made us different was we knew how to do the basic trauma assessment really, 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 really well. And I would encourage those of you working in remote and austere environments to 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 embrace that mentality of be really good at the basics
0: definitely on message in terms of what we're about at basic scotland because it <laughs> yeah you know, that the fancy interventions and are, are not the things generally that make a big difference for the vast majority of patients the vast majority of patients need that basic care done supremely well
1: agreed and having education is important but until you get the experience I have a saying at the college, there's two types of knowledge. There's head knowledge and there's hand knowledge. And you need both, of course. You start with the head knowledge and you get the concepts of prolonged field care into your toolkit. But until you do a scenario where it's 24 hours, 48 hours with a casualty, that's where you actually learn the importance of prolonged field care mnemonics and the skills and the longitudinal observations and, and dealing with a casualty for 48 hours. And in Malta, when we run our PSC scenarios, that people are exhausted, and it's exhausting for us as instructors as well. It is really a challenge, but you have to go through that. You have to be exhausted. So one of our scenarios is we have a loudspeaker with a generator, and the light is only on if the generator sounds, and you could barely hear yourself think, and that added stress factor is teaching these people to be good medics even in adverse situations.
0: The last thing I want to just unpick a little bit is stealing your background as a psychologist. For the majority of basics responders in Scotland, if they're into a prolonged field care type job, um, it's generally a sign that things aren't going particularly well. Perhaps the weather is bad and aircraft can't fly and we're looking at other options or they're a long way away from the roadside for whatever reason. From a psychological point of view, is there anything that you can do – for yourself and or for your patients to try and bridge that gap and give them some psychological care during those initial phases?
1: That's a good question, and it is a stressful environment, and you need to be able to handle the stress and be able to get rid of the stress, off-gas the stress, to continue working in these environments. There's a saying that I came across when I did a wilderness psychology degree from Prescott in, in Arizona. And one of the books that I based one of my papers off was from Gonzalez called Deep Survival, and it's something that I listen to. I'm a big audiobooks. I listen to it every year or two, again and again and again, because of the learning that's in it and the psychology of wilderness. But his thing is, he has a saying. He "Be here now," and that means that when you are in these prolonged field care environments. It is easy to wig out of it and be a pinger, as we say in the army, and you're just stressed and thinking about the future, thinking about the past, or getting hard on yourself because you missed the pelvic fracture and you didn't get it until prolonged field care. You just have all these extra stressors, and the trick is kind of a Taoist way of being a medic. So be here now means you are here in the situation right now. You're not stressed about you're not worried about the future we're not worried about the past you're right here now and it expands the awareness i remember one time i was working in south africa on a response vehicle and we got to a person versus vehicle they're very common uh, and this person was really badly hurt and we were in a township as a tent at night it was raining and there's 100 people who were not happy around us and using this be here now i didn't ignore what was going around me it was almost a a hyper-awareness, a, a column of just being there. And what happened was, or repeated, be here now from Gonzalez. And what happened is I saw the BLS responder wasn't doing two-handed bag valve masks. So what did I do? I Can you please do the, the correct BVM? So you doing the basics well. And then I could reassess my casualty. Okay, we got the ketamine now. Maybe I need to think about midazolam to reemergence. And it gave me clear thinking. So from a psychological point of view, that Taoist approach I, has
0: really worked for me. It's really interesting, and it kind of chimes with a lot of things that we, I guess, are still discovering about how we respond under stress. Um, what about for your patient? Is there is there anything that if you've got a conscious patient, clearly for them, this is going to be hugely stressful, hugely scary. Is there anything that you can do during that cheap vomit type interventions beyond just our usual approach of chatting, complete drivel at them.
1: Well, there's science behind that chatting and distraction is a pain management tool. So there's definitely a need for that. I think psychologically, the person is extremely scared and they know they're in a very difficult environment and there could deteriorate before they they get extracted. So if you engage the casualty, and hey, oh, hey can you help me out here? Hey, can you hold this can you hold this line for me? That'd be really helpful. Or a part of sheep vomit is raising the head unless they have a pelvic fracture or something that's going to contradict that concept. You just raising the head and getting them involved in the environment around them is going to make a vast difference. I heard a lecture at a conference just last week. There's a position of life, which is sitting up. There's a position of death laying down. Your casualty wants to be in the position of life. So have him sit up and
0: engage and have them be part of the team is an approach that has worked for me. That's really interesting. Again, you know, it doesn't require any extra kit, doesn't require any extra real training, but the mindset of getting the patient as part of the team, I think, is, is really valuable. Averick, we've been asking all of our presenters to give us three takeaway top tips. I think I mean, we're definitely going to link to some of the websites and documents that you've mentioned during the course of this, but what are your suggestions in terms of key things for our responders to take away with them?
1: I would encourage anyone working in the Highlands and Islands of Scotland in remote areas to follow the concepts of special forces, and and that means be really good at the basics. If you don't practice your one-hand, two-hand BVM techniques at least a monthly basis, you're losing cool points. If you don't know how to put in an IV in different situations, not just on a plinth in the back of the ambulance, but in very difficult positions, then you need to change that. You need to be really, really good at the BLS level as well as the ALS level. And we are only as good as our basic skills. So BLS, no one likes it. Critical care paramedic When out, out with the lads. They're like, oh, I, I'm not going to do CPR practice. Why would I need to do CPR? AED, I haven't touched an AED in weeks or years or months. And that's the wrong answer. Be very good
0: at the basics. Fantastic. Yeah, that's really useful. And certainly chimes with our message back at Basic Scotland. Averick? Thanks so much for sharing your knowledge and experience and hugely varied background, because I think there's a huge amount that we can draw from this and a huge amount that translates beautifully into remote Scotland. Uh, Not a problem. It's an honour to be here. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.